let's start things off. Uh, welcome to the FinTech Podcast. I've got two guests today um, on the show today, which are going to be brilliant. We're a lot of information to go through. Let's start off with uh, Stephen. Can you just, um, first of all, how is your day going? Um, I'd love to know. And second of all, how are you doing today? Hi, Charlotte. Uh, my day is going pretty well so far. Thank you. Um, looking outside, at probably the sunniest day of the year so far, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which, uh, which always helps. Um, but no, I'm well. So um, yeah, very nice to chat to you. And um, yeah, uh, my name's Stephen Elam. I'm um, a partner at Cook, Ewan and Keaton, or CYK, as we call ourselves. Uh, and um, yeah, I specialise in um, commercial litigation, mostly financial disputes, uh, and increasingly fintech related disputes um, with some regulatory um, work uh, alongside. Lovely. And already my ears are pricked up. Anything to do with fintech on the show today is going to be brilliant to talk about, um, especially in this sort of side of things, you know, with the law um, side of things. This is going to be brilliant. Um, So moving on to my second guest that's also featuring on the show today is um, Stephen's colleague, Sam Roberts. Could you, um, again, same question applies. How is your morning doing? Um, Obviously, we've got a lovely sunny day to work with, which is fabulous. But how are you? And could you also give me a little bit more of an introduction about yourself? Sure, thank you. Thanks for having us on. Um, yeah, day is going uh, brilliantly so far. Um, I am a senior associate at CYK, will be for the next two days, and then I will be joining the partnership, uh, which was officially announced yesterday. So that's Oh, congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'd say that my, um, my, my niche uh, is definitely fintech disputes um, as well. Um, traditionally from a, a sort of finance banking um, perspective and then uh, also with a sort of long-standing interest in, in technology did a bit of uh, programming that sort of thing back in high school um, and then the someone invented the the portmanteau fintech um, and that <laughs> seemed like a natural fit for me. Oh, well, this all sounds perfect. I think, you know, already we're kind of molding this into the lovely fintech uh, jigsaw that it is um, for the conversation today. So I think without further ado, thank you for, first of all, the introduction with both of you. I think today we're just going to find out more, obviously, about the company, um, which, you know, is um, Cook, Young and Ke- uh, Keaton, um, LLP. Um, I think we've got a lot of content to go through today, but to start things off after that lovely introduction, um, Let's start off with Stephen. Can you tell us a bit more about um, CYK um, and what sort of things you do generally um, in regards to fintech? Sure. Well, CYK is uh, is a law firm. Uh, it focuses exclusively on disputes and contentious work, um, with uh, a real emphasis on financial disputes. Uh, we've been going for oh ten plus years now. It's probably a bit more than ten. I think you lose count after after mm-hmm. ten. But- you could say we were a creation of the last financial crisis. But uh, what we look to sort of bring to the work we do um, is some real you know, knowledge of the financial businesses, the financial products, the financial technology. Um, mm. And that very nicely dovetails into everything um, fintech related. Um, so um, uh, Sam can give you a bit more about the sort of things that we do. But um, over the last year, I've been doing increasing amounts of work in relation to the cryptocurrency sector. Um, I mentioned in my introduction that I also uh, am the sort of the regulatory uh, board, if you like, within yes, CYK. Yeah. Um, so I'll say a little bit about that. I mean, that, the, the spectrum of that work is really um, uh, helping and advising, I suppose, uh, one end of the spectrum established financial businesses who've been regulated for a period of time, who may have um, difficult issues, questions, 
investigations, mm. hopefully not, but they happen from the regulator that they need uh, help in dealing with. And then on the other end of the spectrum, perhaps the more forward-looking regulatory advisory work, um, the, the cryptocurrency work is a good example of that, where actually a lot of the work is really trying to look forward and anticipate where regulation is going, mm. um, advise crypto firms on that, really so they can start to adapt their strategies, be ready um, uh, and work out how they plan ahead for their businesses to ultimately be regulated firms because it's going to be very hard for, for many of them to escape that over the, um, the medium to longer term. Absolutely. I think with what you just said, obviously, um, factoring in how long you as a company have been uh, evolving, um, definitely over over a decade. Um, I think that's something, you know, sometimes from a lot of what's happening in fintech, it's really um, developing or evolving once a crisis has happened. Um, one thing which we can't hide away from is obviously the pandemic at the moment. That is one factor which we can possibly talk about today. Um, but as our listeners have probably already gathered, cryptocurrency is going to be one of our key areas of conversation today. Um, but I suppose following on from what Stephen's just said, Sam, um, what else would you like to comment on with that? Yeah, well, the, the uh, really accurate number is 12 years, but who's counting? Um, <laughs> the Yeah, I mean, so we, we've done um, quite a broad range of what you might call fintech disputes. Um, I think some of them are um, sort of traditional, traditional types of disputes that you saw before the rise of fintech, which just happened to be about fintech. Um, and then others that are more true fintech disputes where the, the technology is really at the heart of the dispute. Um, I think the crypto disputes are, are a really good example of that. So um, for example, um, stolen or ransomed crypto assets um, mm. is becoming an increasingly uh, big chunk of our uh, practice. So, um, I mean, this was stuff that used to arise and, and still does arise, actually. It's, it's you know, it's, you, you'll, you'll read about something um, along these lines probably every week um, in the litigation world where um, someone has, has defrauded a, a victim and, and caused them to send, um, you know, millions of pounds to, to the wrong bank account. And from mm -hmm. there it's dissipated and you're sort of then chasing around uh, the UK if you're lucky and the world if you're unlucky trying to um, trying to get it back. Um, and I think one of the things we're going to go into in a little bit more detail later is, um, is the application of, of exactly that sort of trend into crypto assets rather than cash. Other types of fintech disputes. Um, so we, I, we're seeing more um, what you might call sort of traditional finance disputes playing out on, on fintech platforms. Um, so for example, um, where a business has set up a sort of brokerage platform allowing you to trade in crypto linked derivatives or um, maybe raising finance against crypto assets. Um, there's really ripe for disputes when you get things like um, uh, margin calls if the if because obviously these 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 assets are just notoriously volatile so if mm. there's a, a dip in in market price then you get margin calls you get forced liquidations um, we've seen algorithmic trading disputes where platforms obviously don't like their customers to use algorithms and um, that can lead to automatic closeouts um, so that's a good example as well um, we do um, founder disputes as well. So if, uh, you know, uh, obviously a lot of these businesses are startups, they're trying to attract um, outside investment. Um, 
they you know either then sell on the business or do attract that outside investment and you know disputes can arise um that's kind of an example of, of the first type of fintech dispute i was talking about which is, is you know traditional disputes that just happen to be about um fintechs so um but i, th I think because the the what is sort of unique about fintech there is that because these the subject matter is so hot and it's such a you know a great source of outside investment and investors are always looking for the next unicorn that um <clears throat> that that it, there is so much money going into these businesses and when when some of them fail um inevitably the the person who's lost money is then looking to 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 someone and it could be the founder it could be the business it could be someone else an advisor trying to figure out how they're going to recoup their money um and then i guess the last the last example would just be over the software itself maybe um licensing disputes are a good example um that can often happen on the sale of a business as well um where you know someone thinks that they've bought the rights to use valuable software and it turns out they haven't or at least there's a dispute about it um and then we do i guess just the last category um uh, disputes over over actually developing the software itself so if you, you, know, you bring in a developer and it doesn't quite go to plan inevitably these things um don't run to to time or to budget and uh, again where there are where there are disagreements or disappointments um disputes ar arise so um yeah i think that's probably a fairly accurate um overview of, of the kind of things we kinds of things we do yeah i think with what you just mentioned there i mean again this is um you know someone listening today uh you know, and when I say someone, I say me, obviously I'm not a fintech expert in the slightest. So that is a very specific and accurate detail of what you guys do on a daily basis. Um, it's just, it sounds like a lot of ground to cover, um, but this side of fintech is really the hotspot of, I suppose a lot of consumers aren't witnessing this, you know, you do see, you know, business to business and these sort of disputes that you mentioned arise, but um, it's fascinating. I think, you know, anything which in regards to this at the moment, you know, in the last year, I, I would be very curious, you know, I'll probably be asking you guys in a bit, a bit more to do with how, you know, the changes have been seen in the last year with that. But um, no, that's perfect. What you've just said there, I think with what you were doing um, as a practice is just, it's very interesting from someone who's not a fintech expert. So I'm hoping anyone today listening who is a fintech expert, whether they are from a startup company or even a unicorn, this is going to be um, a lot of content, which I think is going to tick a lot of boxes for our listeners. Um, I think moving on for a second, um, probably this is one that I'd like to ask uh, for you, Stephen. Um, could you talk about some of the um, work that you've been focusing on, um, you know, more recently? Yeah, sure. Um, well, probably one notable recent example that fits in with with some of the points we covered in the intros um over the last year or so so probably actually really um consistent with lockdown mm. um we've been involved in an interesting case acting for um a crypto exchange uh, in a quite high profile piece of litigation in the commercial court in london um the, the reason why it's had quite a high profile is that um, in the very early stages of the litigation um, it's now the, I think, the first reported case to, to sort of show the English courts deciding that um, Bitcoin is property for the purposes mm. of English law, um, meaning that the courts can then give relief in terms of uh, different types of injunctions and most notably proprietary injunctions. So anyone sitting on a particular tranche of Bitcoin, uh, if that's the right phraseology, mm -hmm. um, has to has to hold that and. Um, uh, potentially it's property that can be clawed back 
by by someone who has a valid legal entitlement to it. So um, that was uh, that gained a bit of interest because yeah. that happened before. Um, property in English law is a rather strange thing and uh, wasn't really um, defined with crypto assets in mind. So there's been a bit of uh, a bit of a process with judges getting to grips with that. But anyway, that that's all positive. That's now established. Mm. Um, the case itself, and it's actually um, uh, an increasingly common scenario. Uh, so what happened was that there was a, um, a cyber attack. Uh, in this case, it was on a Canadian insurance company. The insurance company, as you might expect, has its own mm. insurance for um, cyber related issues. Yeah. Um, its insurer pays out a ransom to the fraudsters in Bitcoin uh, in accordance with the, the policy terms as it, as it, um, uh, as it agrees to do. Uh, and then the, that insurer then steps into the shoes of the, uh, the insurer that's been hacked uh, and effectively looks to then bring a claim to try and get that Bitcoin back. Um, and that then starts a, a process that's um, I think increasingly common uh, and almost sort of developing to its own industry, if you like, in terms of blockchain analysis, um, instructing uh, an outfit who's an expert in doing that and effectively trying to follow the Bitcoin in this case uh, and, and follow that through the, the, the blockchain records to see where it goes. Um, obviously, the blockchain is a very good record of that, but it's not a very good record in terms of details of who the people involved are, um, given the anonymity involved in all of that. Um, what happened here, and I think what will happen in quite a lot of these cases, is eventually the trail stumbles across an address that's associated with a with a cryptocurrency exchange, mm. uh, and there you therefore then have um, have a target, um, uh, and um, that was uh, Bitfinex in this case who um, who we were acting for. <clears throat> now, when that happens, uh, a couple of things can happen. The particular claimant might try and um, seek information from the exchange to work out well, you know, who's who had the account with you that that brought that particular crypto asset to your exchange platform uh, and the court will subject to perhaps some legal complexities that might be beyond the scope of this discussion um, will often be willing to give that relief and order um, exchanges to uh, to provide that information so that further recovery attempts can be can be made um, the um, the interesting quirk in this case was that uh, actually the insurer claimant actually pursued a claim against um, Bitfinex too they did seek that information as to who Bitfinex's clients were, um, but they also argued that Bitfinex itself was potentially liable to, in essence, repay that Bitcoin mm. um, or damages equivalent to its value. Um, and we were talking about um, 96 Bitcoin here. So not huge amounts and probably back when this happened, um, the, the, the value of that was obviously quite a bit lower now, but I think it's probably jumped by about 500% since this um, this ransom took place. So yeah, reasonably serious amounts to, to, to fight over. Um, and um, yeah, the insurer looked to, to bring a claim against uh, Bitfinex. It was a number of claims that were raised, um, effectively arguing that um, Bitfinex uh, received the Bitcoin or its proceeds on trust for the insurer and therefore should be liable to repay it. Hmm. Um, alternatively, that um, uh, Bitfinex was reckless as to the way it received those crypto assets uh, and whether that might lead to a claim. Those are all quite new novel 
legal claims in English law and are yet to be tested. Uh, and actually, I'm pleased to say they won't be tested in this case because um, of the exchange, which is um, uh, after Bitfinex put its defence in, sort of robustly defending those claims, um, which um, is obviously a, a fantastic result for the exchange and for the mm -hmm. sector too. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in that space because the factual scenario that underpins that case is clearly one that um, is being seen in other cases and will be and will be seen uh, again. Um, and um, yeah, there are a few lessons to be to be to be learned there. And I think we might come back to some of those on yeah. the later questions. I think, um, you know, that is a case that you've just um, mentioned there, you know, um, the detail that goes with it. It's interesting. I think this is one that's just interesting to think, you know, probably just thinking out loud, but actually thinking about these different cases which are being witnessed in the last year um, with everything else that's going on and that side of fintech where it's the the ins and outs, you know, of this side, Bitcoin, a hot topic which is mentioned on a daily basis in fintech, you know, any sort of cryptocurrency or danger or risk, you know, that's happening. Um, you know, Sam, would you like to comment on anything with what Stephen's just talked about in regards to how it's been, um, I suppose, more of in a, you know, a generalized term in the last year um, in regards to the pandemic and any other impacts that have had um, with the cases going on? Yeah. Um, so the I think this is something that a lot of um, practitioners have observed uh, during the pandemic was was the, the rise in, in fraud. There, there's just a, a huge amount of it um, out there. I don't know if it's because cyber criminals are also locked down, <coughs> bored at home in front of a computer, and suddenly mm -hmm. that's the, the best way of uh, making a quick buck, or if something else um, explains the trend. But um, yeah, I mean, there, there has been um, a, a massive increase. It may also just be correlated with the, the general increase in interest in, um, in cryptocurrencies um, generally. Um, and particularly um, because, uh, you know, unless you sort of have a have an understanding as to what the actual, uh, you know, technological sort of backing behind the uh, the investment is, then you might be more easily duped. So, so for example, I don't know if you if you listen to the the BBC podcast about um, the the missing crypto queen yeah. and, and one coin. Um, mm. And, you know, what that was saying was that, um, you know, allegedly there, there wasn't even a blockchain at the time that people were throwing in, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds um, by way of investment. So, you know, you, you need to sort of do your do your research and, and make sure that what you're actually, um, you know, investing in is is really there. Um, so, you know, in terms of fraud generally, yes, it's definitely been on the rise during the, the pandemic. Um, I think the case Steve was talking about is a, is a perfect example of it. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that um, sometimes the, the, the technology um, isn't really, well, sometimes the, the, the case is about sort of traditional legal issues that just happen to manifest in the context of a, of a, a fintech business. So for example, in, the, in those sort of situations, you might not actually have to know that much about the technology. Um, but this is a really good example of something where the technology does make all of the difference. Um, so when, when we were just trace, chasing down stolen cash, um, you had a situation where um, you, you knew you knew where your cash had gone um, and you could find out who had stolen it um, through making you know, applications to court and 
um, against banks and the banks would obviously have information about their own customers. And, you know, so if, if, if I've had money stolen out of my bank account and it, I, I can see the sort code and the account number of the account it's gone to, then I can make an application for disclosure against the bank that has that account and they mm. can show me the accounts um, or uh, sorry, the bank statements of the account that it went to. And, you know, I can I can do rinse and repeat and, and follow it on. Um, and what Steve mentioned is that with with cryptocurrency blockchains, you sort of have the inverse in that from the get go, you can tell exactly where it's gone because it's on a publicly available ledger. Um, but trying to find out who who it's gone to, trying to actually associate a, a real legal person, whether that's a company or an individual, with the the public address to which the the cryptocurrencies have gone, um, it's essentially a matter of luck. Because unless you you know you're you're able to trace it down to to a to a known exchange, and the exchange has information about the customer, maybe they've gone through KYC processes when they've onboarded a customer and they've got passport photos or utility bills. Um, unless that happens, then mm. you know any one of just literally countless um, addresses on the blockchain um, and. You're, you're a little bit stuck or a lot stuck actually. Um, and because it's, because it's such a good fraud, I can imagine that it's only gonna get more popular. One of the things that jumped out at me the other day was um, the news that Tesla has invested very heavily in cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. I think they're taking payment for specifically Bitcoin and they're taking payment for cars in Bitcoin now, which is you know great and everything. And that's the sort of changing with the times, but you're, my concern is that with a business like that, you're essentially pointing a big red arrow to yourself saying target here. Mm. Um, and we'll get onto this, I guess, a little bit later in terms of, you know, the, the potential victims, what they can do to ensure they don't become victims. But um, they could get themselves into a bit of difficulty if, uh, if, they, uh, if they get hacked. Um, and it's, um, like I said, because it's, it's such a good fraud and the victims do have to get lucky in order to get it back. Um, I think we're only going to see more of it. Yeah. I think, um, that's a very valid point with what you just mentioned there. Um, Sam, especially with, you know, it's one thing that until we see what is going to happen in the next six months, um, you know, again, any sort of impact we're having, uh, from economical side of things in regards to the pandemic, it seems to be something which, I don't want to say hindsight, but until the event has happened and then you're able to look back and think, gosh, that's where we were from, you know, month one from the pandemic or lockdown to now obviously a year over a year, you know, into this and seeing where those current trends have flowed positively and negatively in regards to fintech, you know, with bringing it back to the survive and thrive um, mentality. Um, I suppose for my next question um, for the both of you, I don't know how you want to formulate your answer. So obviously, whoever wants to answer first, please jump in. Um, <laughs> but um, I would like you to just talk um, in more detail, more detail, sorry, um, about how um, how is dealing with fraud in the context of cryptocurrency different to what you've done traditionally? So again, whoever wants to jump in first, the floor is yours. <laughs> do, you to that one, do you want to take that one, Sam, and I'll maybe add something to uh, yeah, um, your observations? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think I sort of um, covered covered a little bit of that with my my last answer. Um, mm -hmm. I guess what I would um, I guess what I'd add to that is um, hmm. 
Um, Maybe perhaps with this, Stephen, if there's anything you want to comment um, in regards to Sam's thoughts on this, um, anything else that you'd like to comment on, um, please feel free to do so. Yeah, I, th I think Sam's answer actually um, addressed it really, really quite quite well. I suppose we're it, it feels like we're sort of part way through an evolution from frauds traditionally being undertaken in cash um, at one point, you know, hard currency, um, suitcases full of notes um, mm -hmm. in dubious circumstances. And um, um, yeah, and I'm, I've been sort of doing my job long enough to remember, um, you know, advising on frauds that were all about, you know, bankers in dubious jurisdictions exchanging suitcases full of notes in you know railway stations and things of that nature but you know that uh that seems very much to be sort of frauds of the past now um, yeah even, i think the, um, <laughs> even even the sort of the, the the chasing cash from bank account to bank account that mm. uh, the rinse and repeat approach that sam mentioned i mean look, that that obviously does happen too but that's all um generally a byproduct of cyber fraud now anyway mm. um and then cryptocurrency i suppose seems to be the next extension of that in that it's just a little bit uh, more difficult to, to trace for the reasons that sam that sam mentioned you can get get so far but the anonymity associated with that um with the with the sort of whole structure of the, the blockchain makes that makes that difficult and it may be one of those things that uh regulation catches up with over time and i know there's certainly been some talk in some jurisdictions about possibly imposing requirements that somewhere behind the scenes the, the details of you know people behind transactions must be retained somewhere so that they're available but that, that does really um cut across the sort of fundamentals of what the what a sort of blockchain is looking to achieve so um, there are difficulties with that, and it'd be interesting to see see where that goes. But um, yeah, it just seems that um, cryptocurrency is increasingly going to be the the route through which frauds are taking mm. place. Um, the amount of money involved and the volumes are you know, staggering. Um, you know, the relative lack of regulation compared to other traditional um, sectors um, probably contributes to that too. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, with what you were just talking about there in regards to the um, the old fashioned or, you know, the sign of the times with going back to how it used to be, you know, having, you know, that hard cash, the sterling, you know, any sort of currency where it would be in the actual format, you know, suitcases, whatnot, you know, of course, we think of films in that regard, you know, um, I watched Lady Killers, you know, the other week, and actually that would just kind of sprung to mind there for a moment. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, moving forward, that's kind of seeing it um in that regards of obviously it all being online everything nowadays is just seeing those technology trends which is seeing the risk um that's really occurring with cryptocurrency and what you've discussed in regards to bitcoin as well um so i think um moving forward um i've got uh I'm trying to think what my next question was um obviously we've talked a lot about cryptocurrency um for one of my next thoughts um for you to have is you know so what sort of things would you say exchanges should be aware of in light of your experience um i'd like to um get your thoughts um Stephen and sam on this um from each side so i think again if we start off with um Stephen um to answer that question and then we can get um sam's thoughts as well yeah sure i think um 
I mean, the first thing is that the point I mentioned before that there's only going to be an, an increase in these type of um, these type of situations um, and um, uh, frauds where crypto assets will be traced and invariably find their way to exchanges and, and therefore an exchange is, is brought into something. Um, I, I think um, exchanges should just be, re be ready to have processes to deal with that. You know, they won't always face claims in relation to it. Most of the time they might just be on the hook to be ordered by a court to provide information um, and obviously have systems in place to do that efficiently, quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and be ready to enable to you know freeze accounts where the need arises as as will from time to time, um, and um, but I, I guess you know that there is um, there is always this feel that uh, you know chasing recoveries from fraudsters is a, it's a difficult thing to do. There is always that feeling that you know if there's a potential deep pocketed target defendant that could find itself in the mix, then they invariably will at some point. So I think a lot of the exchanges you know fall into that. Um, fall into that category. Um, so I think they probably will see more, more claims. Uh, I suspect um, probably where we'll get to is they'll, they'll the, the, the angle that might be developed for that uh, is quite sort of difficult questions as to exchanges, um, AML processes, and just what information they do have and don't have on their clients and how easy is it to set up accounts and what's the monitoring like. Uh, and obviously the, um, the ability to do that effectively is evolving all the time. And I think this is probably one of those areas where the fact that a lot of these exchanges aren't regulated yet because the regulation isn't there, probably you know, can paint them in a, in a negative light from time to time. But I think, um, I think probably speaking from people, to people you know, behind some of these exchanges, they actually positively look forward to being regulated. In a sense, it, it, will, it will help. Obviously query, what jurisdiction and where that may be, it you know, depends. And by their very nature, they're, they're digital businesses without obviously a physical location. So there are some questions that that raises, um, but um, perversely actually having regulation and a bit more structure as to how they should go about their AML process and things like that might actually um, help them over time. And I think it's something that they would, um, they would welcome. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's um, anything that's any form of structure really moving forward um, is always a bonus. Um, I think, um, again, Sam, if you um, would like to continue just with your um, your thoughts um, on this. The only thing I, I, I think I'd add, add to that, um, I, I have to say, I don't have any personal experience of this. It was just sort of when I when I came across it, it's sort of one of those things that raised um, raised an eyebrow was the um, existence of, of tumbling services. I don't know if you've come across these before, but they're Essentially, uh, they're a bit like exchanges on, on the blockchain, but they will they'll receive payments um, or transactions from customers, and then for a fee, so say a, a small portion of a Bitcoin, they will spin off that single payment into a variety of different payments to to other addresses, and they're receiving multiple payments from multiple customers, and it, the idea is that it, it'll makes trying to trace payments along a blockchain much more difficult um, or, or impossible. Um, and I, I have to say, just from the perspective of a, of a lawyer that does a lot of, um, does a lot of civil fraud work, um, that sort of business looks a bit like a, a sort of money laundering business. Um, and I'm not, definitely not saying that they all are, um, because obviously people, um, you know, use the value and not anonymity on the blockchain um 
and trying to improve that anonymity is an understandable um, desire in certain circumstances. But um, I can see also see an argument that a, a business which is intended to obscure the, um, the source and destination of money might have um, a difficult time explaining what it was doing. And um, uh, if, if either authorities came knocking or if lawyers started writing to it. Um, and I think um, particularly where um, the, the tumbling service isn't going to be asking questions about the source of the funds, um, by funds, I obviously mean, you know, crypto, crypto assets on the blockchain, if it's not going to be asking questions about the source of the destination, um, then I think that they would need to be careful, um, because in the wrong circumstances, what you, what you often see in, in litigation over here is particularly where there's a victim of fraud and the court starts helping them, and they get a fair wind and some momentum behind them, then, you know, if they, if, if after the sort of third or fourth injunction, it turns out that money's gone through a tumbling service, then they could just get swept up in the, in the litigation whirlwind. And, um, and, and like I said, have a, have a difficult time explaining what they were doing. So um, it's a, it's a bit of a sort of logical, um, logical knot, you know, trying to, mm. on the one hand, um, the purpose of your service is, is, is not to ask questions and to facilitate the anonymity. But if you haven't asked the questions and you can't then provide answers, um, I could see, I could see businesses like those getting into, um, into a bit of hot water. So that's obviously in regards to um, the business thought or the business side of things. Um, could you um, talk as well, obviously, um, you know, about the customers or the crypto investors um, in that same regard? Yeah. Um, so I think the one of the things I was thinking about when um, Steve was talking about the, the sort of recent the recent trends and the rise of um, this sort of fraud is just the ease of stealing cryptocurrencies sometimes. Um, so you know, we, we've had cases before where um, in your sort of traditional bank payment frauds, where um, the, the genesis of the fraud was that a fraudster faxed some payment instructions to a bank. And in this day and age where you're using two-factor authentication and fingerprints and facial recognition to log into your account, it might seem pretty anachronistic that you can still fax instructions to a bank and, and cause it to send millions of pounds across the world. But, you know, some banks still do accept instructions that way. Um, I think on the whole, that is a sort of dying trend. Um, but generally speaking, like trying to steal money from a bank account, um, you know, unless you're doing a bit of social engineering and causing the person to to log in um, to their own account and, and send it to send it to an account for you, and that definitely does still happen. But you know, actually hacking into someone's account bank account these days is quite difficult. Mm. But with with um uh, with a cryptocurrency, I mean, usually all you need is is that person's private key. And I remember back when the crypto craze was taking off, there was a, a I think a journalist or a reporter on a on a a, a sort of morning morning breakfast TV show or something who didn't quite know what he was doing and he he got his um his private key mm. in, uh, in a QR code and sort of flashed it on screen and someone oh. just zoomed in and stole stole it because that's all he needed was just mm. the information contained in that image which this guy then just flashed on TV around the world um 
and like it doesn't it doesn't have to be i mean that's just one sort of fairly silly example yeah but, uh, you know if you left it in your wallet or you left it on your phone or in your email address or something you know you're it's a bit of a, a race to the bottom your your cryptocurrency is only as safe as your own security unlike with a bank which requires you to have an alphanumeric key um, password or requires you to have two-factor authentication mm. your security is only as good as you're willing to make it um and um and you know as we've just been saying or exploring like and and, and you have to get lucky um there the cure is is definitely you know you cannot cannot rely on being able to instruct lawyers and, and get that back for you get get your cryptocurrency back for you so prevention definitely better better than the cure but um which probably means better security than most of us are, are used to again because there's no big brother there requiring us to do that stuff we maybe have to download software or something or write it on a slip of paper and leave it in a desk drawer and not forget about it mm -hmm. um but the other like this is a sort of one of the the ingrained ironies in in uh cryptocurrency that you your security shouldn't be so good that you yourself lose access to it because then it's as good as gone there's no like again no one you can turn to no sort of ombudsman or whatever complain that you you've lost access to this uh to this account or to to a safety deposit box or something it's just gone you can't you you're you're, you're stuck um which again is you know something that someone like tesla needs to needs to keep into take into consideration that you you want to make it as secure as possible from hackers which probably means offline storage um which probably means you know strong locks on the doors where where it is physically held um but again not so strong that you can't get in um mm. so uh, and ultimately you know you've got to factor all this stuff into you know into your actual business model are, are, are you planning on accepting payments in bitcoin um, for, for goods and services, because if you are, then you need to factor that into your, um, into the sort of ease with which you can get access to it. So if you are storing it offline, then, then that, that takes time, that takes resources, effort. Um, so it's a, it's, I, I, I definitely don't have an answer, but it's a sort of, uh, you know, perpetual, um, boxing match between, um, between good enough security and too much security. Mm. I guess is the way I would phrase it. No, I think um, the way you've explained it there, you know, makes um, makes a lot of sense. You know, hopefully a lot of our listeners today have already from the conversation um, learned or, you know, found out more about, you know, cryptocurrency in that sense. You know, we touched very loosely on how it's been um, in the past year um, in regards to the pandemic. But um, yeah, I think, um, you know, just going back to obviously how it's been in the past year, we've talked very loosely on um, the pandemic and that side of things. But I think having the pleasure of talking to you both today, you know, for our listeners, just to remember, we are talking to um, two lawyers who I think we've, we haven't had this before on the show, gaining that sort of perspective on things in regards to fintech. So um, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, you know, again, Sam Roberts, Stephen Ellum, and I think... Um, you know, it's been an absolute delight. Is there anything before, you know, we come to the end of the conversation, you know, whether it's either a bit of advice or just a thought, you know, concluding the conversation today? Um, I wonder if either of you have, you know, just in regards to what we've talked about, you know, just a few words um, from either of you, um, if either Sam or Stephen would like to, um, would like to say. <laughs> I think I think Sam and I are looking at each other now, like <laughs> wondering who's going to come up with something suitably busy first. Um, I, I think, um, Maybe I'll just add something really briefly to what sort of Sam just said on the sort of investor and customer perspective. 
Um, and it's probably just that it's going to be fascinating to see. Uh, this, this actually sounds terrible in my mind. It'd be fascinating to see what happens with regulation. Mm -hmm. That feels like a very strange sentence because it's only sort of geeky lawyers like me that can find that fascinating. Um, but, it, you know, it, it will change the dynamic hugely um, in relation to uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, and, you know, it has to move in that direction. And obviously that's really important for invest investors, particularly for consumers who, you know, have been sat at home in lockdown. You know, sat, you know many, many people will have opened mm. um, accounts with exchanges for the first time and will be dabbling with a little bit of Bitcoin as uh, as prices have been going up and having some some fun doing it. But, you know, as it stands, it's all, um, and probably the vast majority of those people will never actually grapple with um, offline storage for their Bitcoin. Um, and that means they don't hold those assets. They are just sitting with it, whatever exchange they're dealing with. Um, you don't own them. You just got a, a, a right to them from the exchange, just like we all do with the money in our bank accounts, to be fair, as a mm. uh, in, in comparison. Um, but, um, you know, if there's another big hack of an exchange, which is obviously a critical thing for the sector to ensure it doesn't happen, but it may, it may happen, <clears throat> then, um, yeah, alas, we're, you know, any consumer is exposed to that, unfortunately, and um, isn't protected at all. So, yeah, hopefully that will, um, all move on as all of this becomes more more mainstream i was going to say at the end of the day time will tell i think you know once we um experience a sense of normality um again obviously talking on the uk side of things with the restrictions um you know kind of being eased and going to that sense of normality and you know fingers crossed we gain some sort of um I guess, I guess, gain more security in the fintech side of things. Again, I'm speaking from a business, a consumer, um, you know, anyone that's really heavily involved in fintech, you know, you want to have at the end of the day, any security. And I think what you've talked about um, with the topic today in regards to cryptocurrency, um, Bitcoin as well, this is one which I think will be very interesting to see moving forward. Um, Sam, Stephen, it's been an absolute delight having you today on the show. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. No problem at all. Thank you.